giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with my co-host, Derek. How's it going, Derek? Pretty good, Ben. How are you? I am awesome. Cool. So how was your week? Well, my week's been good. Um, it's always a little tricky with a with a short holiday week yeah. to cram into a span of four days, but... Um, yeah, it's going, it's going pretty good, making good progress. Do you feel, when you have four days, do you experience that phenomenon of feeling like you're about as productive because you're just forced to be more efficient? Or are you, do you miss the extra day noticeably? Mm. I think, uh, so this week, we could talk about it in a, in a few minutes, but there was something that came up on, on Monday while I was trying to you know take the day off that uh, kind of pulled me into work a little bit. So um, I think at the end of Monday, I was kind of feeling like, all right, I've got, I've got a stacked week now because of some things that happened that day. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, so I've, I've been uh, definitely trying to be super aggressive about getting in the zone and putting my noise canceling headphones on and just getting work done. Yeah. What are your tricks for getting in the zone? I think generally for me, it's like um, finding a good good playlist that mm. um matches whatever uh, energy i need at the time so sometimes it's like you know hardcore metal and other times it's like uh indie relaxation or something you mm-hmm. know yeah. um and i think i just kind of have to to listen to my own uh head to figure out which one's the right uh, the right mood that's interesting I, I never got into that like listening yeah. to music while working the the really? closest i ever came was like certain like trancey drone type stuff would work for mm. me as background noise but i find yeah. almost everything else to be a little too distracting hmm so like like vocals like uh, vocals would definitely destroy yeah. me yeah i think it's partly because like i'm thinking auditorially in my head perhaps right like i'm actually like i'm kind of talking to myself mentally yeah and so when someone else is talking too, it, it throws me off I could see that. I used to try to listen to podcasts and work at the same time, Oof. and that was like, oh my god, <laughs> that only lasted about a week, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, that that would be nice if you could if that, you could pull that off. That sounds very productive, but yeah, exactly. I was trying to I was trying to kill two birds with one stone, I guess. Yeah, it said you probably just slightly injured two birds. Exactly. Yeah, that's not good. So, what happened on yeah. Monday? So we had a customer who decided they wanted to run some some large uh, bulk operations in Drip. Mm-hmm. And that basically allows you to import a list or update your subscriber database with whatever data you decide to upload into Drip. Mm-hmm. Um, so this particular customer has has popped up on our radar before because they like to do really complicated things. And mm-hmm. if you look in their account, like it's actually they're doing some really interesting things with workflows and using custom fields to uh, like track all kinds of different data points about their subscribers, mm-hmm. but for us, it, it manifests itself in like large swaths of background jobs that kind of get backed up. Um, we kind of alluded to this last week a little bit, like mm-hmm. queuing is one of the major challenges of Drip because there's just so much data we have to process um, all the time. And so, you know, this customer decided to run some, some large operations. And um, so I was kind of babysitting the queue, making sure that like the highest priority things are getting run first. And it kind of led to an interesting conversation where, you know, like our first reaction when these kinds of things happen is to kind of feel like upset and like, how can this person be abusing our system in in this way, you know? Mm, Yeah, yeah. But actually, like, 
if you look at what they're doing, like sometimes when this happens, it is someone, you know, skirting around some rate limits or trying to abuse the system. And then we can go through the normal channels of shutting their account down or whatever. But in this case, they're actually just using the tools that we give them. Um, Those jerks. Yeah. So Rob and I like had a conversation. We're like, well, we we have one of two paths here. We can either usher this customer off the drip platform and say, look, your use case doesn't fit with the way drip works. It's it's too much load. Go find a new platform or we can kind of go down the path of figuring out what we need to do to make sure that their use of drip doesn't actually impact other customers and Mm -hmm. hose the system. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the right answer here in this case is we should we should fix our system, you know, mm. but it's hard to accept that because it feels like, you know, out of the many thousands of customers we have, how can this one customer possibly be putting this much load on our system? And, yes. you know, do we really want to support this? But yeah, they're really just using the tools we give them in a, in a super aggressive way. So mm. maybe when an ordinary customer would have 10 custom fields, their, their subscribers have 200 custom fields yep. and they have like 45 workflows. So, yep. That's so. What is what is the core problem then? You don't have enough workers to chew through their jobs. Yeah, it's like we would have enough workers if they didn't have so many automation rules running. Like it kind of becomes a question of the the more automation rules you have, the longer it takes to process each um, individual event because mm-hmm. each event has to try to figure out if when it's processed, it has to figure out our automation rules in that account listening for that event. Right. And if so, then, uh, you know, trigger automation, which could result in more events being spun off. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of this, like, it can be multiplicative in, like, one job runs and it spits off three more. Um, yep. So, I mean, ultimately, the, the answer is probably to add more, uh, more threads, you know, have more concurrency, but there is an upper limit there. Like we can't have 10,000 threads at the same time, probably um, <laughs> given our, our infrastructure. So mm-hmm. I think there's some, some performance tuning that needs to happen and probably some throttling, you know, mm-hmm. um, where like a, a really big job with that much going on could understandably run for a few hours. So if we just throttle it and keep it from overwhelming things, then you know, that could at least be a short-term solution. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Throw more boxes at it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So those are the easy answer. If it it's works. interesting to look in, in the new relic graphs and see like uh, you can see the the sidekick activity during the time when this person's running their operations and there's like a few queries that are running eighty times in one worker. So yes. there's obviously like a like a n plus one problem there. Yeah. You know, which normally doesn't is not a big deal because people don't have forty five workflows typically. Mm-hmm. But um, I, it's funny. I, I had a I had a similar thing where someone was quote unquote abusing our system. Which mm-hmm. is we have this basically one customer, so we we don't put a limit on submissions to Formkeep, mm-hmm. and so mostly that's fine. And then every once in a while, we have someone that's like has a very popular thing that people are opting into, right? Uh, and so we have one of those customers that has a little over half a million uh, email addresses that just like blast in at a fairly continuous rate. Like there's probably now like eight hundred thousand of them. They just they get a lot of uh, signups and, and submissions. Yeah, and so their export, their CSV export fails. So if they want to generate a CSV, we were doing this fairly naive solution, which worked for everyone else, which was Active Record gives you a dot two CSV method on right. collections that will just go through the collection, look at all, like figure out all the attributes, build the header row, and also turn all the things to, to uh, like a, a CSV format. Uh, and that's okay until you have, you know, half a million things, which is like a couple gig of RAM in, in Active Record land. And then yep. suddenly... The core problem is 
if you want to generate the header row for a CSV, you have to scan the whole collection. Oh, interesting. Because we have custom field, so anyone can send any data they want to to FormKeep. Right. And so, like you could ha- like your like five hundred thousandth record could have a whatever key in it that we hadn't seen right. yet. Right. And so we have to see all the records before we can generate the header row. And so this thing was basically just holding everything in memory and scanning it a f- and a couple times, and it was it was not so happy. Oof. Yeah. How are you storing custom field data? I'm curious. Is it like in a, a JSON blob in the database, or do you have uh, tables for that? It is. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's it's Postgres's JSON thing. Yep. Yeah, which actually works pretty well. I haven't seen any like problems that I would point back at that. Sure. Have you done? Just curious. Have you done any like indexing of that column and trying to query into it at all? Uh, no. Oh, okay. uh, actually, no. Have yes. Uh, what did we do? Yeah, there is some some indexing that happens. This this was actually like a thing I inherited. This was already written when I got here, so I don't yeah. I haven't, I haven't had to dig into it. But we sure. do do some sort of processing on every submission that indexes it in some way to be searchable later. Got it. I don't got think it. we're like leaning on Postgres for this. I think we're like generating kind of our own something yeah. something and then searching that. It's cool. I think in the nine point four release of Postgres, maybe or nine point five something like that, um, they released basically indexing of JSON B columns, mm. which, and then you can do like an operator where you query based on the data inside of that JSON object. Oh, nice. And then I, so I think all the Mongo people, when they saw that were like, that was like one more, uh, one more strike against using a schema free database because you can essentially do schema free with Postgres just using a, a JSON column. So, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm going to try not to talk trash about Mongo, but <laughs> people I respect have problems with it. So yeah, yeah, be warned if you're for, if you're thinking for, about it for sure. So I guess I, I I empathize with you because I've had that thing where it's like this works for everyone else, yeah. But all your stuff is falling over because you're using us so much. But we said you could, so like I guess we should right. just fix it. So I did, and I ended up doing this thing like writing a temp file out, like doing a sequential scan through the thing, writing a temp file that holds the header row, and then you know writing as we go and doing it in batches yep. and all that. And yep. the the nice thing is that now it's faster for everyone actually. Yeah, that's usually the case. Like with, like being able to support the edge case users generally lifts all boats or whatever the whatever the phrase is you know like <laughs> yeah. uh, it helps everybody so yeah and like in this case our imports are going to get much faster i think um for for the general populace so mm-hmm. it's it's going to be good but yeah it, it is interesting to when you start discovering certain things that you don't have any limits on and you never thought to put limits on it like right. what is the maximum number of custom fields a subscriber should have i don't know we never we never put a validation on that, so yep. now someone has 500, and we can't really back off of that because, <laughs> you know, we would screw them up. So totally, yeah, and, and totally a problem that you couldn't have, I mean, shouldn't have anticipated. I would say, yeah, like to have spent much time on that, I think earlier it would not have made a lot of sense. Yep. So that was your Monday. So you worked on the holiday. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, what are you doing when you're when you said you were like making sure the highest priority things go through? Shouldn't that already happen? Like don't things already have a priority and they get worked in some sort of order? Like, they do, but in some cases, like an import job will push a bunch of other jobs whose responsibility is to update our Elasticsearch index with the new subscriber data. Hmm. And in some cases, like there's like five copies of this re-index task in there um, because five different mm. things impacted the subscriber's data. Gotcha. And all of that is like super non-critical. So it's is dialed down to the lowest priority it can be. And Sidekick 
prioritization works like you basically assign a number value to a job and that determines like how often it'll get pulled compared to others. So if something has a 10, it'll get pulled 10 times more often than something with a one. Mm. So it's already dialed down as low as it could be, but it was still, there was enough jobs in there that it was still pulling those jobs off intermittently and it just didn't need to happen while the rest of the things are being processed. So gotcha. I just basically went in and, and manually disabled that queue and just let things pile up in there for a while. Mm. And there were a few other different things similar to that mm-hmm. that we could just kind of pause for about an hour or so while Whoa. things catch up. That sounds yeah. like you're like in a Formula One car and you're like rooting around in the engine as you're going down the track at yeah. 300 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll just I'll patch this over here and reroute this over here. That's kind of what it feels like. And then I also spun up I spun up a few additional servers. We we don't have like our full auto scaling infrastructure in place. That's kind of like something we work on in the background and it's not it's not fully ready yet. So I was spinning up a few additional servers and tweaking with threads like move, shifting concurrency from our high priority queue to our low priority queue mm-hmm. uh, and it, stuff like that. That infra- devopsy infrastructure stuff is just I know someone that went to go work for a, a successful company that is hosting themselves on AWS, and it seems like he spends most of his time on Mongo and AWS issues. Yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> like, are you working on the actual products? Like, not really, no. We just have so many things that need attention and help. Right. It's, yeah. I think it's amazingly easy to get like a pretty complicated and hard to maintain infrastructure. For sure, yeah. And so that, that kind of actually is a good segue to my next ah, my next update, okay. um, which is we finally made an offer and it was accepted by a new developer to join our hey, team. Cool. Yeah. So this developer is going to be focusing primarily on kind of back-end infrastructure and scaling things and performance. Um, cool. So, Can you name, name names yet or is it still a hush? You know, it's not... I, I won't name names yet okay. because... It's, I'm not sure how if it's been officially announced totally. everywhere. Yep. But yeah, suffice to say, I'm I'm super excited, and uh, he'll be joining on next Monday. Awesome. So, yeah, that's gonna be cool. So maybe he can work on those those holidays. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I ideally no one will have to work on holidays, totally, but yeah. it'll be nice to have at least another body uh, around to kind of work the pager duty, you know. Um, do you feel like this person is um, has more experience and ability in that area than you do? Definitely. Yeah. Nice. Like I, I don't have DevOps training in particular. Um, I've learned as I've gone. And so I've kind of built up knowledge about it and specifically about how drip works. But yeah, this this guy has has quite a bit of experience just dealing with lots of data and doing ops related tasks and so and he's also a ruby developer he hasn't been he hasn't been doing ruby recently in his day job and he wants to get back to ruby so hmm. i think it's a good what was he what was he working in that he didn't like as much um i think more python stuff okay. and then also just like working on i don't know logging infrastructure and stats databases and just like all kinds of random other technologies gotcha so, and I had this I had this moment with with Ruby the other like when I was working on the CSV thing where it just it sound, I was like half a million records it doesn't sound like that much to me I feel like yeah. I should just be able to like load all that in memory and blast through it really fast like what do we, I, my processor does billions of instructions a second like come on like it, it, that it's it felt like this should be doable I haven't yeah. actually like tried like I don't actually know that other languages would be faster I assume they would I mean Ruby tends to lose those kind of shootouts pretty regularly yeah but, like if if, I, if this were like an elixir service would it could it could it handle that much much more easily i'm curious i i would imagine so just the weight of ruby objects is we've had a number of processes before where like running something similar to an export in a sidekick job and we're like pulling 
hundreds of thousands of records out and you can just see Monit constantly restarting it. Like it'll get a certain point and memory graph will grow and then boom, restart mm-hmm. and it'll retry and just never finish. So yeah, Ruby is frustrating when it comes to memory for sure. Yeah. I, I bumped us up to uh, the bigger Heroku Dino, so we have more RAM now, but st- still, come on, Ruby. Yeah. I guess this is, this, is the, this is the trade-off you make, though, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So d- this person that you hired, do you feel like this is like one of those outcomes of being acquired by lead pages now? Like you can hire people more aggressively, or was this a hire you're going to make otherwise? Yeah, I think it's definitely... Joining lead pages has allowed, has given us more budget to be able to hire for a position like this. Like, I don't think we had posted a job posting for this specific position before this. We were, we have been looking for a front end designer because that's been kind of a much needed position for a while on our mm-hmm. team. So that we're still in, in search for that. But um, it would have been nice to do this before, but we just didn't have the budget. So joining lead pages definitely helps. Mm. Cool. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, you know, I'm going to be onboarding this new developer uh-huh. and I know at ThoughtBot you guys do a lot of rotations and obviously when new client projects come in people are getting onboarded all the time on new new code bases or existing code bases mm-hmm. do you have any tips or strategies on how you guys ramp people up um, so it's been a couple of years since I've jumped onto a client project so my okay. my uh, knowledge might be a little bit out of date sure. um, but for me nothing is quite as efficient as pairing with somebody Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning, if you can pick a couple tasks that are relatively approachable and say like, let's work on this together and do some screen share or something like that, I find that to be the highest bandwidth way of getting some domain knowledge transferred and also just like, oh, by the way, here's this quirk about this thing that you should know about. Sure. Um, so that's kind of my favorite. I also really like to focus on, this isn't quite an answer, but I, I think when someone new joins the project, it's an awesome opportunity to document the things mm-hmm. that are not already documented. Yeah. So it's like every question that this person has to ask you should go become like a markdown document in some repo somewhere. So right. that the next person that comes on can just read it there as opposed to asking you. Yeah. Um, or, you know, throw it in the readme or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you have a readme for your, uh, for the, the drip repo? Yeah, we do. The read, readme grew so big that we started like splitting stuff off into like a docs directory okay, nice. in the repository. I like, I still like using Git for, for documenting all this stuff because of the, the versioning and yep, totally. looking at diffs like it just is the perfect medium. But yeah, we we have like started out as like here's how we bootstrap new servers and here's how we here's how you set up your environment and awesome you know and then it's gradually grown from there. So nice. yeah, I think I could definitely see adding more docs as as he has questions. That's a really good idea. Yeah, the the fresh eyes thing is you just you, it's hard to like look at and say like what haven't we documented yet? But as soon as someone right. is like new to it and has none of that domain knowledge, it will become. It makes it very obvious. Right. And it's the perfect time to do it because like we wouldn't want to, I don't think I would want to spend cycles trying to figure out how to document things that people may have questions about. It's like, right. yeah, so exactly. that's a good opportunity. Um, so that's good. Do you have a, you may, your app may have grown past this, but we, it's common practice for us now to have like a bin setup script. Mm. So it's like you run this thing and ideally you're ready to go. So yeah. it installs all your dependencies, get your database set up does seed data if need be, things like that. Just kind of like a one command, get your app going thing. Yeah, that would be that would be cool to have. We don't really have that. I mean, it's like a few lines where it should work for most people. Like, yep. make sure you have the right Ruby version, then bundle, and then rake DB seed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we have no excuse because I hear that GitHub still has like something like that for their main repository. So mm. 
If GitHub can do it, I guess Drip can do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yes. And I can tell you uh, that there is a lot of code in the GitHub repo. So oh, I'm sure. In the, in the dot sure. .com repo, it is, it's healthy. Yeah. It's a healthy amount of code. That's a good euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if this, was the case, if, this, if this is still the case, but the user model is large, as you might expect. Mm -hmm. And organization, at least for a while, inherited from user. Oh, wow. So organizations were basically just like users plus wow. some stuff because they were pretty close to users and so someone's like ah let's just use inheritance and Oof. so now you have like a they have, i mean this is this information is now years old but yeah. a friend of mine told me like yeah we have a you know multi-thousand line user class and organization is also multiple thousands of lines which inherits from that user class oh my gosh so did I they mean, share a database table good question i'm not sure Poss oh. i mean they could rails certainly would let you do that yeah like i don't know if it was using sti or not that would be trippy. Wow. <laughs> it, it might. I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah. But, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had migrated away from that by now. Yeah. It's been it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. So there was actually a thing I wanted to run by you. I wanted to get yeah. your thoughts on. So sure. one of the things I was working on this week is figuring out what we want the new Hound pricing to look like. Mm -hmm. So Hound right now we charge per repo, like per every repo. So it's $12 for a private. If you want to, if you want to, if you have a public repo, it's free. If you have a private repo, it's $12 a month per repo. Okay. We want to move away from that because it gives people this like unfortunate mental feeling every time they enable it on a new repo. We have a lot of people telling us like, I have like some repos that don't get a lot of attention and I want hound on them, but like, I don't want to pay every month. And, right. um, it just, and, and also like, you know, I have one or two more to add, but every time I do it, I feel bad. Cause I feel like my, I can, my price is going up immediately. Yep. And so we were talking about uh, two different ideas. One is tiers. So like you pay a certain amount of dollars per month and you get, you know, 10 repos. And mm -hmm. that still is per repo pricing. Um, it's just there are fewer points at which you have to upgrade. Right. Which was so we made this move on FormKeep and it was a big win for us, I think. Yep. Um, and it solved that problem of like, the, I don't want to add another thing because it makes it go up. Uh, that at least it sort of delays that makes it less right. frequent. Right. Uh, so that's one option is, is like per repo tiered. And the other is per collaborator, let's say. Okay. So, okay, okay you can enable it on all your repos. And the thing we came up with recently was um, the way we would determine a collaborator is in a given month, how many people opened a pull request mm. on the repo? Because some people add collaborators to like open issues right. or just to review things. Uh, but if you open a PR, it means you have code that you want to get merged in, presumably. And right. so at that point, we count you as like, okay, you're an active developer on this project, so you should count towards the, the total. Yeah. Interesting. Talk me through how... So Hound, I'm, I think I have a good understanding of how it works, but it basically runs... It's similar to a CI tool where it runs static analysis. Is that what yeah, happens? Yeah, it's or? like RuboCop in your PRs. Okay. So you push, a, open up a PR, and we run Rubicop with whatever configuration you want uh, or our default, and it. it will do inline commenting. Okay. On the PR. So, presumably, if someone is a large customer, lots of pull requests are getting issued, then you guys are having to do a lot of analysis. And if there's relatively few pull requests being issued, then it's a small amount of work on yep. your guys' side, right? Yep. And I think that, yeah, that would kind of scale with the value. So interesting. Have you considered like per pull request? Briefly, the thing I don't like about that is that I feel like it disincentivizes people to open small pull requests. Mm, and yeah. I think small pull requests are good. 
And so yeah. I don't want to encourage people to write software in a worse way. Right. To save money. No, that makes sense. And then another thought that popped in my head is, you know, I guess looking at how CI is priced, it's basically based on compute capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, or how much you can do concurrently. Is it a lot of load to run this analysis? Is it like visible to the user that like this is currently running on this branch and similar to how CI works or is it like um, pretty lightweight? It seems pretty lightweight because it's, it's quite fast. Okay. Generally, the comments appear like pr- almost, I mean, within seconds of opening a PR. Right. So someone wouldn't necessarily like benefit from increasing their plan so they can get more concurrent hound I processes running. No, probably not, unless they had like the most popular repo ever. Yeah. Got it. So, yeah. So, I, in my experience, like the, the tiers based on a cap of some kind worked well for CodeTree. Mm hmm. I had, it was basically, well, the pricing is still the same, and it's based on the number of users you can have accessing a project. And I thought about doing like something flat, like $5 per user per month. Uh, but I found that it, in some regards, like at the low end, I could charge, is it $24 a month for three users? Mm-hmm. And so someone who had, you know, two users would ha- would get on the plan that fit their usage best. So they'd be on the $24 a month plans. So in that case, we would actually make a little bit more money um, just by the nature of how the tiers are split up. Mm-hmm. And I think it helped customers for sure to feel like they adding just one user wasn't going to impact their bill. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of good psychology around, you know, using tiers in that way. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if as a customer, how I would feel about the collaborator approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if it feels too complicated. You know, like, is it visible enough to the user how the number of collaborators is actually being determined yeah. if it's based on opening pull requests? So I actually did. So we were having this debate in a thread somewhere. And sure. I was like, this is silly. We should just ask the customers. Yeah. And so I did. And the overwhelming majority preferred per repo. Tiers. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the biggest complaint, it seemed, around the collaborator stuff was complexity. Mm-hmm. People were like, I, it sounds complicated. I, and I didn't actually break it. We hadn't had that idea that we would do it by people opening PRs. So I didn't actually have the details in there, like what I was thinking. I basically right. just left it vague, like, you know, a certain number of collaborators for a certain number of dollars. Yeah. Um, and people were pretty vehemently <laughs> against the per collaborator thing. Yeah. I think, honestly, they would have found it more palatable if we had thought of the thing because a lot of people would respond and say like what does it mean for a collaborator is that everyone in my organization we don't like that because we have people that just do documentation or whatever right but the initial first brush and like people a lot of people complain like i guess github and code climate and maybe a couple other people have moved to this like sort of per seat pricing recently and people kept mentioning that and saying how much they didn't like it interesting Yeah. yeah but so so the 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 consensus from the customers was like oh my god please do not charge per collaborator but I like it. Still intrigues me because I feel like it does a really nice job of discriminating the pricing. Yeah, because like you just have a you have a wholly different budget if you are a two developer team versus a twenty developer team. Right, and you might still only have one repo in both those cases. Right, and so like I could underst- I would understand why you would not like it as much if you had a twenty developer team because it's suddenly it's a much more expensive product, but it also matches your ability to pay so much better. Yeah, and hope and hopefully the value you're getting. 
and I would suspect that's why GitHub and some of these other companies have moved more towards that. Like it would be a crime for Google to pay, you know, nine dollars a month because they have one mega repo or something totally. like that. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so that's a good point. Um, but I think yeah, the, it does seem really complicated to base it on collaborators because because Hound is making public comments on a pull request. It's like it's like there's no way for you to restrict who's able to. S- See that it's not like you can say like um, you know only this user and this user and this user are added as creators and so therefore they're the only ones that can see the output like yep it's already visible to everybody so man yeah that is a tricky one mm-hmm. but I think it sounds to me well how's how's it priced right now by the way uh, twelve dollars per month per repo okay yep. yeah so to me it sounds like it, it would be a win to move towards tiers I think so as well. Yeah, I, I think I think the tiers will definitely be a win. I'm just curious, like, I wonder if the the collaborator thing would be an even bigger one. Like, right? Would it let us, you know, charge substantially more to our larger customers? I think it would. Uh, would the would the net effect be better uh, versus the people who would piss off? Like a bunch of people explicitly told me, like, if you switch to this, I will cancel. Um, yeah, so I don't know if it it would be a bigger win. Yeah. To to potentially move to that, I think either will be good. But I'm just I'm, I want to find the best one rather than you know do one and then the other or something. Yeah, I mean. Another thing you could consider is like multi-dimensional pricing. Yeah. Like based on, I, I had like a project number cap also on my code tree tiers. Uh-huh. But I would say in most cases, it was just like nobody got close to it because I made it like a multiple of five or, or something. So like if you had three users, you could have up to 15 projects and basically okay. no one had that. Yeah. But it was kind of just there to like make, or that a really large organization with a ton of projects wasn't going to come in and somehow fly under the radar on a on a lower tier. Interesting. So, okay. Well, I guess I'll ponder this. I, I think we're going to end up going with the tiers just because it's going to make people happier. Yeah. And when the customers tell you something overwhelmingly, it's probably the right thing to do. Yep. I think that's a very good signal. To yeah. Pick up on. yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 funny how often I forget this like basic trick of like stop guessing email some people that are currently paying you money and see what they want you to do. Right. At the very least, you'll find out if you're going to have a massive revolt on your hands and change up pricing. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I was actually, we got a really good response rate. I don't don't know what the exact percentage was, but it felt like just tons of people wanted to weigh in. Yeah. Which was cool. that's a good sign. Yeah, it's, it's bad if you get if you get crickets when you try to to pull your your customer base. So. Yeah, that would I would agree. Yeah. I think some of the phrasing I think was helpful though. I was like, we're considering we're gonna we're probably gonna change our prices real soon. This might affect you. I want right. to know what you think. That's like a pretty, oh yeah. I, th- I would open that email. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so are you are you grandfathering people? Or are most people gonna get a dis like? Is their price gonna go down based on this? Um, I think we're gonna do a temporary grandfathering. Got it. So I I, I did this thing on Formkeep where I had two pricing models around for a while. Mm-hmm. So we like announced the new pricing and announced the grandfathering and said, You're, we're going to move you over in like 60 days, but new people can already sign up for the new pricing. Right. And that was really confusing. Like having the code base support both pricing models was really complicated. Yeah. So it took me a lot longer to do. And so what I want to do on Hound is announce it, say, we're going to move to this pricing in N days, and then just start coding the changes to support the new pricing. And then Got cut it. everybody over at once. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'll be a little more efficient. And yeah, I mean, my goal is to move MRR up. So grandfathering in people would, you know, be a nice thing to do, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't help me achieve my goal as much. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I think we're going to, we're going to 
give people a certain amount of time if they if they are upset enough by the new pricing to move off but otherwise we're gonna move them over right i imagine a lot of people it's not going to be a major like a major jump up in cost um we'll see we'll see what the numbers look like yeah yeah i'm trying to figure out what like the base price is that's another debate that we're having i guess i could email people again but that i I do feel like where it's like do you want the higher price or the lower price like that's kind of a that's one of those things we can't really pull maybe yeah yeah Although Patrick from Price, and Price Intelligently had an interesting talk at MicroConf where he, there was some sort of question format you could use to determine willingness to pay. Oh, yeah. It was like, at this price point, is this kind of expensive, too expensive? Like, expensive, but I would pay it. So expensive, I would never pay it. Things like that. He had, like an, he had an interesting question model for this kind of issue. Yeah. I should dig into I, that. I think there was a name for that yeah. type of survey, too. Yep. And I'm pretty sure I got one of those from GitHub before they made the pricing change. Oh, interesting. <laughs> which nice. is funny. But yeah, that, oh man, that talk was so good. I, I mean, it was so in-depth, like, I couldn't even really take notes. I just had to sit back and listen, and then, mm. you know, you could look at the slides later. But <laughs> Yeah, is the video of that out? I think it is, right? I don't know. It might be. Yeah. I, I, th- I thought I remember seeing some MicroConf videos out, so maybe it's the, yeah. maybe it's the thing. Yeah. Maybe Tom will find it and throw it in the show notes. There you go. Uh, maybe I'll watch it again. Yeah. I think there was a lot of good stuff in there, like building up the persona and figuring out who's willing to pay what and yep. what, where the price sensitivity is and all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Uh, so we're coming up on 40 minutes. Do you have any other major stuff from your week? I think I'm, I think I'm pretty good. Yeah. I think I am too. Cool. Um, hopefully next time we'll talk, I'll have some more pricing news. Yeah. yeah. I kind of can't, like the, the thing is sort of bounded by when we announce it. Because if we're going to give right. them a certain amount of time, it's like, okay, until that email goes out, like the clock hasn't started and I want the clock to start because, you know, right. sooner is better. So yep, that's my accountability item. Like if we haven't emailed the, the customer as the new pricing by next time I talk to you, then something has gone wrong. Got it. All right. I'll hold you to that. All right. Sounds good. Cool. Hey, it was, it was good talking to you as usual. Yeah, you too. Uh, I guess I'll talk to you next time. Cool. Cool. Today's show was produced and edited by the Cryptonomatom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 209. Thanks for listening.